seats, you can open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a, a black hardbound one somewhere near you. And this morning's passage can be found in those hardback uh, Bibles on the floor uh, on page 961. 961. Um, it is always a privilege to be able to gather uh, with you all. Um, I don't take that lightly. I mean, I'm just looking out at the crowd and looking at the faces, understanding so many of our histories are intertwined and our stories and our life and just filled with a sense of God's love for us collectively. And so I, I hope in some way that you experience that this morning. Um, and it's, it's a privilege to be able to gather, but it's like, like this is the, the highlight of the year uh, for Christians. I mean, this is our Super Bowl. I and mean, that's what Trenton, our sound guy, said. Am I ready for the Super Bowl? I said, I hope so, right? I mean, the, the, this is the day above all days. I mean, we are here this morning with a message of hope. We are here with a message of life. We are here with a message of reconciliation and peace. And literally the message that we're going to talk about this morning has flipped the world upside down, right? I mean, this message that we're going to look at, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has turned the world upside down. It has never stopped saving people, right, from that first Easter morning all the way until today, right? It has never stopped working in any part of the globe. There is Christians on every continent of the globe right now. And we are here this morning very simply to add our voice to millions of other voices around the world to say Jesus Christ is the Lord, right? He is alive. He is risen. He is the King and he is worthy of all of our worship, all of our praise and all of our lives. Now, now I, I know as I paint this picture of this global message, this historical message, right? Um, for that to make any difference to you personally, it has to come find you on your street, right? It has to have an address Grace and mercy need to come and visit each of us um, very specifically and very purposefully. And I'm just confident. I um, echo, that's a Christian word. I echo what Chuck said very, very, very early on that, that, that God does want each of us to experience him in a real way. Like I, I'm confident that he has something specific for each person that's here. It's not by accident that you're here this morning. Um, so, so grace and mercy um, are here to, to draw near. Now, um, I want to just start with uh, a story of how hope came to my house when I was a nine-year-old boy. So I don't know how many of you had the chore of like checking the mail like when you were a kid. So that was mine. Um, and this was a particularly difficult task because... Um, my driveway was about a quarter of a mile long and it was jagged and it was full of a lot of rocks. And I mean, I have enough scars on my elbows and knees to kind of bear witness to the treachery that was my driveway. But what, one thing that that long walk did for me each and every time that I took it, it gave me a, a chance to kind of look at the mail, to kind of 
anticipate what was in there. And um, most of the time, you know, it's uninteresting stuff to a nine-year-old kid. But, but one day, just like Ralphie on A Christmas Story, right, I open up the mailbox, and here is a letter, and this is what it says. It says, congratulations, you may have already won $1 million, <laughs> right? And as a nine-year-old kid, I mean, that is exciting. And so I have this, there's this period of time, like, I, you know, I, my parents both worked, and it was 3.30 in the afternoon, and I mean, it seemed like an eternity until they got home at 5.30, because I wasn't just allowed to open the mail, so I had to kind of wait, and, and I, I was excited, and so I remember my mom coming in from work, and I showed her the letter, and um, she didn't seem to kind of grasp the gravity of what we were holding in our hands, and um, I said, can I open it, and she just flippantly, sure, go ahead, um, But then that's when it got really exciting because um, I did what no one else did, right? I opened it up and I read it from cover to cover. So even the fine print and the fine print said, not just you may be a winner, but you already are a winner. And so I thought that I held the keys to everything. And so um, the only catch was this was a letter from Publishers Clearinghouse. And that meant that we had to buy two or three magazines um, to be able to claim our prize. And so I began to, in my nine-year-old way, begin to plot and to scheme how I could get my parents to actually buy these magazines. Now, to make a long story short, we never got the magazines. We never got the million dollars. But that sense of anticipation and hope coming right where we live, that's what God wants for each of us on Easter, right? This isn't just this general message for all humanity. It's a message for all of us. It's very real. It's very personal, and it's very specific. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me as we read verses 1 through 8? Verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, I do pray that right now that the power of this message would not be limited by the communicator of this message. I, I pray that you would do what you promised to do to allow your word to bear fruit um, in and through your people. I pray that you would 
um, exchange my weakness for your power in these moments. I pray that you would give us really ears to hear, um, not just physical ears, but with real understanding that can change our lives. To do that, we need you to send the Spirit, which you are eager to do, but we humbly ask that you would help us in these moments to encounter you, that this wouldn't be um, a religious show, but this really would be an experience of your power and of your salvation. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the book of 1 Corinthians, I don't know how much you know about the church at Corinth. Probably not a lot. I don't know a lot either. Um, So you're in good company. But one thing that this letter is about is wisdom, right? So the the people of Corinth were fascinated with wisdom. um, And it was a kind of wisdom that really emphasized style over content, you know, a little bit like um, our athletes that kind of uh, do commercials for McDonald's, you know? I mean, I don't know how many of you really buy into the lie that Kobe Bryant actually, after uh, a long day at practice, actually sits down and eats a Big Mac, right? But that's kind of the culture at Corinth, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter what you say, but it matters how you say it, right? So this is a culture that's fascinated with wisdom, and what they're going to encounter is the wisdom of God, right? I mean, and wisdom is not just the um, acquiring of knowledge. Wisdom is that set of values that you're going to build your life on. So what they're understanding in this letter and in chapter 15 in particular is what's God's wisdom for the whole world? Like, what is all of this about? What is the point? And that's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verses 3 and 4. You hear this is a message of first importance, right? God doesn't tell us a lot of things that are the most important things, but this is one of them, right? So we should pay attention if you're interested in spiritual things at all. Verse 3, right? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised and on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So what God is saying through Paul is when everything is stripped away, this is what matters most, right? This is of first importance. This is something that you can and should build your life on. This should be the thing that should be your legacy. Like at the end of your days, when you close your eyes and sleep... It should be able to be said of people that find their identity in Jesus that this was the most important thing about this person. It is of first importance, right? And on a Sunday like today, it's of first importance in our affections, right? There are no rivals, right? This is the thing, this is the message that affects us the most. It's of first importance, right? So if God says it's of first importance, like the least we can do is pay close attention. Right? We want to listen to what he has to say about this message. One of my teachers and mentors, Jerry Bridges, who recently went home to be with the Lord, said this. He said, The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only essential message in all of human history. Right? I mean, this is, when it's all stripped away, all that matters. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He says, Christianity, if false is of no importance. 
If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important, right? So this isn't just an add-on. This isn't just something that we might um, should think about if we get around to it. This is either everything or it's nothing, right? I mean, this is either true or it's false. This is either something that we should believe or we should all leave here and go buy funny pants and go play golf. Right? I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about here this morning. It's everything or it's nothing. And, I mean, the thing about it is it's so real and so personal. It's supposed to hit all of us where we live. There's so many people in here, if you're honest, like when you pull away the mask and the pretense, there are things in your past that haunt you. Right? They run through your mind daily and they color the way that you see life. I mean, there's good news here for people with the past. There's some people here that, I mean, you, you may honestly be like, hey, I'm, I'm doing okay, right? But I bet it doesn't take very long when you lay your head on the pillow at night to begin to fear what's going to happen in the future, right? And then there's some other people in here that you're just hoping on some level that there's good news to be heard, right? You don't even know how you're honestly going to make it through the day. Well, this message is good news for all of us. This message is meant to speak to us exactly where we are. Verses 3 and 4 um, evidently is a creed of the early church. And a creed is just something, like we'll, we'll do a benediction at the conclusion of this service. It's something that you say to yourself over and over again because it's really important and you don't want to forget it, right? And um, the, the, the point of it is repetition um, because the, the first thing usually to go is the most important things, right? I mean, it's very easy, like if you've been in a church background, to lose the first importance of this message and say, hey, I want to get down to the real meat, right? I want to get to the real spiritual stuff. I want to get to, yeah, what happens in the, in, at the end of time. And I'm going to figure all that out, and I'm going to make a chart, and I'm going to do all these things, right? You can make Christianity about that right? But that's not what it's about. What's of first importance is what's in verses three and four, that Jesus Christ died, that he was buried, and that he was raised again, right? And not only is that a message that is of first importance, and then you move on to something else that's more important, it's the whole thing. What it means for it to be of first importance is it's supposed to touch everything that you think about, everything that you believe, everything that you will ever do or accomplish is tied to this message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? So he died for our sins. That's our first point. Jesus died for our sins. In particular, many commentators believe that this early creed is echoing. um, There's that word again. You can use it later in a sentence. Isaiah 53. Um, Isaiah 53 is a promise of a savior and a Messiah that would come that came 700 years before Jesus. Listen to this promise of the savior. This is the wisdom of God for us. Listen to the personal nature, because this is what it has to do with. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Who has sorrows here this morning? Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Isaiah 53 communicates is we have a substitute, right? It's for our sins. It means that, that hymn that says, how deep the Father's love for us, right? It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished, right? For this to be moved from universal earth-shattering news to personal news, you have to see Jesus Christ hanging on the cross for your sins, not for your neighbor's sins or that person that you think really needs to hear good news. No, it is for you. It is personal and it is real, right? It's It's got to be for the sins that you struggle with every day. It's got to be for the sins that you don't seem to that you don't seem to have a grip on, right? The sins that have a grip on you. It's for the sins that you feel guilty and dirty and defiled and ashamed. It's for those sins that he was nailed to the tree for us, right? He was our substitute. R.J. Grun in an article called "The Scandal of the Cross" says this. He says, "On the cross." Jesus becomes the worst sinner of all time, the Holy One, right? In a moment, there is no sinner worse than what Jesus becomes on the cross. The sins of all people in all times and in all places get put onto Jesus. Jesus becomes the adulterer, the liar, the thief. He becomes the gossip and the town drunk. He becomes the racist and the oppressor, the self-righteous Pharisee, the cheater, the fraud. This is scandalous. Jesus, who knew no sin, gets beaten and bruised in order to make an unfair exchange, giving up his own righteousness to receive our unrighteousness. Jesus becomes the sinner and we become the heir to the throne. Jesus becomes the liar and we become the honest one. Jesus becomes the adulterer and we become the faithful one. Jesus is our substitute. And... This week, it was Wednesday, I just came in this room and I was aware, you can look around the the art that's on the wall. And the reason that we did this is not just to be creative, right? It's because we need to think deeply about the cross, right? In our iPhone world, right? Where we get frustrated if we can't pull up a website in about four seconds, right? We need to think slowly and deeply about the cross. Because, listen, God was not in the business of wasting the sacrifice of his son. There were no unnecessary steps to the cross, So you'll see around this room, and we're going to look at these paintings in short order. I want you to understand that every single step that he took was for your healing. Every step that he took was for your peace. Every step that he took was for your forgiveness. So let's let's think about those things together. The first one, Jesus prays alone. 
Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane. He was alone. He was staring into the cup of God's wrath that is meant for you and I. And the father did not answer his prayer so that he could answer all of our prayers. Jesus was alone so that we would never be alone. Jesus was forsaken so that you would never be forsaken. That's the good news of the garden. Next, Jesus was arrested. An innocent man was condemned so that guilty people like you and I can go free. Right? Next, Jesus is on trial. The only blameless one in history was accused, was ridiculed, who bore the blame that was rightly mine so that I could be blameless, right? So that I could stand up under the accuser of the brethren that knocks on my door every day. He did not open his mouth to his accusers so that he could silence our accuser. That's the good news of Jesus on trial. Next, right? Jesus is... On trial here, and he doesn't open his mouth. He's innocent for us. Next, Pilate washes his hands, performing the duty of the high priest, saying, This is a, a perfect, innocent, spotless sacrifice. That's what's going on when Pilate said, This man's innocent. That means he's perfect for us. Next, Jesus was scorned. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was made to wear a crown of thorns. He was mocked so that we would be accepted. So that we would never be rejected. Next. Jesus carries my cross. He carries my burden. He bears my blame. So that I can be released from my burdens. Who has burdens here this morning? That's what this represents. Next. Jesus carries the cross to the point of exhaustion. This is a a picture of Simon, of Cyrene carrying his cross. Jesus carried it to the, the full end of himself where he was exhausted so that he could give us rest and peace. Right? Next. Jesus says goodbye to the women of Jerusalem. He experiences relational loss so that he can help us in our relational failures and difficulty and pain. Next. Jesus is nailed to the cross. But as Max Lucado says, it was not nails that held him to the cross it was love and it was love for you and it was love for me he endured the full wrath of god so that we can go free next jesus was crucified with two thieves one on his right and one on his left and one of them looked to him and instantly His love changed his destiny forever. And that's the truth for anyone in this room that right now that you can look at Jesus and you can see his perfection despite all of your imperfections and you can go free. Next. Jesus knows what it's like to grieve. 
right? He knows what it's like to look his mom in the eye and say goodbye on, on his death, right? On the cross so that he can help us in our grieving and our loss, right? It's very real. Next. The son of God dies. The eternal God dies so that he can give us eternal life. Next. He was laid in a tomb so that one day our tombs will be empty. Right? He did all of this while we were his enemies. While we were in rebellion. Right? He did all of this so that we would know his love and his peace. So that there would be no question of his affection for us. All of this, Jesus was crucified for us. So that means, right, he's greater than our past. He's greater than our sin. All of that gets swallowed up on the cross, right? It means that in the present, he who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us everything? Right? That's what's true. Romans 8, you know, I mean, then 1 John 4 says that it's his perfect love that casts out fear for the future. The cross is the spot that we look to for hope for our past, power in the present, and hope for the future. Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins. Would you look on him once again in faith? Right? The next part of 1 Corinthians 15 says, in a creed, and I found this interesting this week, it says that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Then verse 4, that he was buried. Now, I had to think about this for a little bit. My my kids, we, we kind of made our way around this room this week, and I mean, we were talking about Monday, Thursday, which is the the Last Supper of Jesus and Good Friday. We knew Easter Sunday was coming, but they said, well, well what about Saturday? Like, what's that called? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> um, and I said, maybe silent Saturday. But it, I found it interesting, like, why would the church in the first century want to remember that Jesus was buried? Right? Why is that important? What does that have to say to our faith? And I as I was thinking about it and praying and studying, I mean, I think there's, there's, a, there's a theological reason that this is important. Um, and then there's a historical one. I'll, I'll deal with the historical one first. Steve Brown says this. He says, how can we possibly believe in the actual resurrection of Christ? How do we know if it even happened at all? The implications either way are earth-shattering. If Christ's resurrection is not an absolute space-time fact, if Jesus is still dead in a grave somewhere, then the whole Christian faith is nonsense. If Jesus got up out of the grave, and he did, it means that everything he said is true. The teaching he gave is practical, and the life he lived and the lives the life he lived and lives can make your life different too. And if the dead man, Jesus, got up and walked away from death, you can too. Right? So what we're talking about here is that, that Jesus was a real person, right? 
If we don't get this, like we miss the whole thing about Christianity. We don't need some theoretical, mystical savior, right? The, the thing that makes, histri- I mean, that makes Christianity so powerful is that it is a historical faith. It says that he appeared to over 500 people at one time. The reason that the, the good news of Jesus turned the world upside down was because the, the religion of Christianity started in Jerusalem. And very easily, all they would have to do would say, well, I know where this guy is buried, right? He's over here at the corner of 6th and Main. Let's go check it out. But nobody did that. They begin to try to explain how come this tomb is empty. And there's only one reason that the tomb is empty. It's because Jesus Christ is alive. And that means he is who he says he is, right? It's important that we understand that this is a real historical faith. But it's also very important for us to understand. And I was thinking about this yesterday. That we live in a Saturday world, right? It's always Saturday for someone, right? Jesus is in the tomb. People are weeping their eyes out. Their hope is lost, right? We're resurrection people living in a Saturday world. So the early church didn't want to forget and become glib and flippant at the idea of suffering and brokenness and loss. Yes, Jesus is alive, but a lot of times what the world needs is is not our answers, but they need our love first, right? That there are people that are going through unspeakable tragedy, unspeakable pain, and what they need to know before they need some pat gospel answer is the fact that, hey, I, I know what it's like to walk a mile in your shoes. I know what it's like to experience pain, right? We, we follow a crucified Savior, and that doesn't keep us or exclude us from suffering or pain. It just helps us to understand and identify, right? So it's always Saturday for someone. Jesus was buried. The grave of every other major founder of a religion has a shrine at it except one and that's jesus because he's not there right this brings us to final point this is the good news he was raised right look at verse four that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures so What we are here this morning to celebrate is not just a Savior that died for our sins and that was buried in a tomb. We are here this morning to say without a shadow of a doubt that He is alive. And that means that every single thing that He said about Himself, that everything that He said about the way that life is designed to work is absolutely and categorically true. And it means that He has new life and new beginnings for everyone every time they look in faith at Jesus Christ. So that's good news no matter what you're facing here this morning. That as you look not just to a crucified Savior, but to one who is resurrected and living in heaven and pleading and interceding for you, every time that you look at that Savior, it changes you, right? There's real life and real power in the resurrection. (laughs) I came across this. This is from, I love this. This is from the foremost New Testament scholar in the world. This is what he says about Easter, right? This is going to shake a couple of you up, so be prepared. 
Easter week itself ought not be a time when the clergy sigh with relief and go on holiday. He's from England. He says, it ought to be an eight-day festival with champagne served after morning prayer or even before. With lots of hallelujahs and extra hymns and spectacular anthems. He says, is it any wonder that people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't throw our hats up in the air? Is it any wonder that we find it hard to live in the resurrection if we don't do so exuberantly in our liturgies? It is a wonder that the world doesn't take much notice if Easter is celebrated as simply a one-day happy ending tacked on to 40 days of fast and gloom, right? So what he's talking about there is Lent. For those of you not familiar with Lent, many um, Christian traditions fast and mourn and Lent and give up things. And he says, most of the time we live like we're always in Lent, but the resurrection signals something better. He says, in particular, if Lent is a time to give things up, Easter ought to be a time of taking up things again. This guy really likes champagne. Champagne for breakfast again. <laughs> well, of course, Christian holiness. Now, this is what I want you to this, this should blow your minds, right? Christian holiness was never meant to be merely negative. Of course, you have to weed the garden from time to time. Sometimes the ground and the ivy may need some serious digging before you can get it out. That's Lent for you. But you don't want to simply turn the garden back into a neat bed of blanket earth. Easter is the time to sow new seeds and to plant a new few cuttings. If you are to flourish as a Christian and truly as a human being, then Easter should mean planting, watering, and training up things in your life, personal and corporate, that ought to be blossoming, filling the garden with color and perfume, and in due course, bearing fruit. Right? Resurrection means that we get to live. Right? We get to live in the good of a Savior that was raised for us. Not only did he die for us, he gives us an entirely different way to view the planet. I mean, what's so amazing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is it means that there is a whole new world coming. Right? That it's not that we're going to somehow mysteriously go up to heaven and be with him one day. No, he's going to come down to earth. And the kingdom of God is going to swallow up the kingdom of this earth. And it's going to transform this into something instead of just being broken that's beautiful. That means that you're going to be able to go on a Friday night to Stadium Boulevard and get a table at a restaurant. Like that's what it means. Like he's, it's a new world. That's one of my pet peeves, <laughs> if you know me very well, right? You, this means that there's this whole other quantitatively new world to come. And every time someone looks at faith in Jesus Christ, that kingdom inches closer and closer, right? That's the good news of the resurrection. The good news is that, that right now, not only do we have new beginnings that come from God, but you have a lifetime of new beginnings, right? You will never exhaust his mercy. And, and this, is, this, is, this is something that's interesting because for, for those of you that have placed your faith in Jesus, probably most of you feel like you've received um, this gift from God of forgiveness, but you just keep messing it up. 
Listen to what 1 Peter says about the righteousness that you receive. We talked about Jesus becoming sin for us. Now, listen to the fact of the righteousness that cannot change for you. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, this makes us alive to hope. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the righteousness that you possess when you place your faith in Jesus is imperishable. It is undefiled and it is unfading. So, when God looks at those that place their faith in Jesus... He sees beauty, right? That's how he sees his people. It means death has been defeated. And if you have been to any number of funerals, you know that there is a sting associated with death, right? We are a culture that is preoccupied with putting off death, Right. We we never want to. I mean, that's the reason most of the time that people close the casket. They don't want to be like face to face with the reality that one day we are all going to die. Well, the resurrection says that death has been defeated so that one day when Jesus Christ comes back. Right. And sets up his kingdom on this planet, that death will no longer have its sting. Right. That Jesus has the last word on death. And really, truly, what happened when Jesus died on the cross was that was our death. Right? We died. Now we are in him. Now because he died and he lives, we live. Right? This new world that's coming, it's going to be awesome. There's not going to be any poverty or injustice. Children's stomachs aren't going to explode in hunger anymore. Right? We're going to have marriages aren't going to fall apart. Like all we're going to have is the this message of hope and redemption and grace that we sing about forever and ever. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the first Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. So if you want to study it on your own, I love the way that it ends. It says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Right? The resurrection means that everything that you do that is connected to Jesus will never be wasted. Right? There's never a prayer that you can pray or a tear that you can shed or a dollar that you can give that's wasted. All of it is for him and all of it will be used to see His glory spread. That's encouraging. Like that gives meaning to when you have to get up and go to work tomorrow, right? It's not in vain. It's a, it's a, it's an opportunity for you to be a signpost of hope to the world to show that Jesus is alive, right? This is a message that changes everything, right? And I know that you are a group of people that love it. And that that makes me grateful. But I just want to close by, by offering very simply this good news to people that know they're walking in darkness, right? If you are here this morning and you know, right, that my life is not characterized by life, 
My life is characterized by death. And it's, it's destroying me and it's destroying everything that I touch. This is God in his mercy offering you a chance at life. If you look at Jesus and say, I want you to be my sin and I want to be your righteousness. I'm, I'm going to stop living life in my own way. I'm going to turn to you like you can actually experience this new life, right? This is, this is the call of the gospel. And, and, and honestly, anytime that I preach the gospel like that, it's a chance for all of us to say, this isn't about if you prayed a prayer years ago. This is about me saying right now, I need this message for me, right? That's what Easter is about. Everybody's saying, this message is for me. This is for my sin. This is for my brokenness. And this is for my life. So I would invite you to turn and repent and believe the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for dying for our sins. Thanks for being our substitute. Thanks for being buried, experiencing darkness for us. Thank you that I'm not talking to the ceiling right now. Thank you that you are present in this place by your Holy Spirit because you're alive. I pray that you would continue to be at work through the power of your spirit as we celebrate communion and worship once again. In Jesus' name, amen.